For those of you that are in here and those that are out there, I wanted to begin by uh, making a plug for something. This Thursday, May the 5th, is the National Day of Prayer. And each year, uh, churches throughout the United States uh, plan times, uh, oftentimes at City Hall or, or uh, various large venues, to come together and uh, pray for our nation. And as in previous years, we, are, we actually have a time slot. There is a, all day on the 5th is there will be churches that are praying in front of Keller City Hall in that Keller Town Square area. There's a little uh, a tent that's set up that set up that'll provide some shade. And some of our, our leaders in our church are leaders in this National Day of Prayer. And so we, we have a time slot from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock Thursday morning. And the staff will all be there praying for our nation. And we would love for any of you that are in the area that you can get there at 10 in the morning to come and join us in prayer as we lift up our nation in prayer. So be aware of that. We'll put out a couple reminders uh, this week, but that's Thursday morning at 10 o'clock in front of the, the Keller City Hall in that town square area there. Uh, today is an uh, important day in history. May the 1st of 1991, uh, Susan went into labor with our second daughter. And in celebration of that, but also in celebration uh, of, of, of another great historical event, Nolan Ryan pitched his seventh no-hitter at Arlington, Texas. I understand he did that in honor of Stephen Roberts, who was turning 19 on that day today. He is, now put that together, add it up. That means today he turns half a hundred. So we want to celebrate with Stephen. He's one of our deacons. And, uh, there you go. He is often uh, involved in our worship ministry over the over 17 years I've been here. Oftentimes he's kind of the backup worship minister. And we really appreciate him and, and his service. So uh, what a great day uh, as we come on May the 1st. It is May of 2022 already. You know, I remember as a kid wondering if I'd live long enough to see the turn of the century. We're 22 years past that. Uh, we're way on down the road. And some of you weren't even born before the turn, turn of the century. We are, uh, oh, last week, Nathan launched for me. I, I was preaching at the Texas School of Photography Conference. We had over 50 people in worship, and Stephen was with me. He was leading worship for us, and uh, we really had a great worship service and enjoyed that. John Wilson, who is our, our vice chairman of our deacons, is a large part of that, that school of photography and has been for decades, and, and he has, uh, he's the one who had the brain uh, or the idea of, of having a worship uh, time there. And so we don't know who all is going to be there. We have people from all different denominations, people who didn't know the Lord at all, come together to worship. And so that's where I was last week. And Nathan ended up launching our new series that's a seven-week series called uh, Resurrection, uh, People's Response to Jesus's Resurrection. And as I look through Scripture, one of the first things that I noticed uh, about how people responded was immediately it was just disbelief. It was like a shock and awe. And that's kind of what I titled the theme as, as we were laying that out. And Nathan did a great job preaching on that last week. He preached on Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 down through verse 8. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to pick up, because I want you to see their response. The, the, the response to the resurrection immediately follows that. My text for today is going to be Revelation chapter 5, okay, on worship. But 
here's the response. Uh, it's this one verse. So if, you can turn there if you want, or it's actually two verses. The scripture says it, it verse eight, which is where Nathan left off last week. He said, so departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the good news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, greetings. I want to pause there for just a moment because this is the first time that they've seen Jesus. They've seen the empty tomb. Uh, they, they, they knew something had happened. They, they, they were in shock. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't know what had happened. They didn't quite know how to respond. And yet, as Nathan preached well, just the resurrection, the very fact that Jesus was resurrected demands a response. It, it, when we understand that, that this God-man, this man who had just died before our eyes is gone and the linen cloths are laying right there, demands some type of response. Well, in a, in a real way, this is their first response past that initial shock and awe. In verse 9, the scripture says, they took hold of his feet. So when they saw Jesus, they came up and they took hold of his feet. Well, you have to think through this because Matthew didn't say they fell down. But to take hold of his feet, that's exactly what they did. Mary and Mary fell down at the feet of Jesus. They just immediately hit the dirt, grabbed a hold of his feet, and what's the next word in our text there? And worshiped him. Worshiped him. The initial response that we ought to have when we come into the presence of the resurrected Christ, when we see God, is worship. And worship is not about me or my preferences. Worship is about him and who he is. Worship is, is simply me understanding that I am nothing. I, 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 my power, my, my glory, my life is, is nothing in comparison to a God who was just resurrected from the grave. And so our response ought to be just simply to collapse in the presence of God and worship him. That's what Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 that we studied last week. Who am I? Who am I that I can come into the presence of God? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And yet the issue in our culture, the issue in our churches for centuries in some ways, but especially in recent decades in the Western culture, has not been to make worship about a holy God. It's been to turn worship into what makes me feel good. And, and, and so as I did a little bit of research on this this week, I, Thomas White said that, that these are, are, are some of the things that have created kind of a sickness in our churches. Extreme individualism, Theological denigration, he says the emergence of the megachurch, consumer-driven culture, and the seeker-sensitive movement. All of these have led us to this idea that, think about that, a consumeristic culture. So what I do is, is I just want to go find, we have churches all over around us, so I can just go from one church to the next till I find one that makes me feel good. It doesn't have to be about God. It doesn't have to be about his word as long as it feeds me and I feel good about it and, and because we're consumers. And so ultimately, we come to consume something and then we leave and we go on about our day. 
Well, churches, this was a, a, a teaching of the church growth movement in my formative years in college and early seminary was the seeker-sensitive movement. You need to figure out what people want so that you can give it to them. And, and we've done that very successful in many of our churches across the United States. And so you had the explosion of what up until uh, 1980 was was kind of a, a weird thing. You might have every once in a while a, a church that grew to what would be titled a mega church, but beginning in the 1980s, they just blew up all over the place because they developed a great mar mar marketing tools and consumer models where they people could come get what they wanted. Here's how Matt Reynolds described it in July 2020 uh, in, in an article titled, The Death Rattle of Consumer Christianity. The consumeristic approach that we've taken in church life in the United States is collapsing because it lacks a foundation. We have favored pragmatism over theology, crowds over discipleship, marketing over evangelism, and coffee bars over catechism. We have shown greater commitment to manufacturing celebrity pastors than lifting up unseen, humble, and sacrificial shepherds. Even if we did not vocalize it, we have implicitly, implicitly taught people by our methodology that church exists to scratch their spiritual itch. So why am I here? Am I here to have my itch scratched? And he puts this in quotes. We have what you want. We have what your family will like. Stuff for your kids. Sports stuff. All the self-help studies you could ever desire. We have cappuccino, music that you won't hate, services that won't impose on your Sunday schedule, language that will make you feel just like you're hanging out with your dudes, trendy pastors to make you feel cooler than you really are, come and get it at our church. Our methodology is our message, and our message forms people. So what's happened is by developing this in what was already a consumeristic society, and you can make an argument of where did this start? Did it start with the church, or did it start with our culture? One, one or the other. The church recognized, churches recognized that America had been a very consumeristic-minded society, so they tapped into that and grew giant churches. Well, what that does is then it teaches us as Americans that church is about me consuming. It's about me getting what I want, me going where I want to hear what I want to get that feeling that I want, and, and then I can move on. And if something happens and I'm not getting what I want anymore, I just move on to the next place where I can get that itch scratched. And it's developed this, this mentality that many uh, researchers now are, are, are beginning to see it's kind of come crashing down on itself because it doesn't have a foundation. Well, one of the themes that you see in, in all of those descriptions is it's about me. It's about what I want, what makes me feel good, the music I like, the kind of preaching I like. It's, it's I, 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 I. In fact, when you think of the term that became so popular for, for a couple decades, seeker-sensitive, that's exactly what it is. It's about let's be sensitive to what the seekers want. Well, that trains seekers just to go get what they want or trains us just to go look for what we want. 
That's not a proper response to a holy God who died for my sins on the cross. True worship is not me coming to find what I want. True worship is me falling down before the holiest of holies, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and confessing that he is God and I'm not. That's why when the disciples come to Jesus, they're toward the end of Matthew chapter 28. And Matthew gives, he doesn't give us a whole lot of detail on what happened after the resurrection. Chapter 28's it. And when the, when the disciples come to meet Jesus, so all you have is these two stories in Matthew. The women meet Jesus, they worship. They fall down on the ground, they grab him around the feet, and they worship him. A little bit later in Matthew 16, it says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to a mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped. And then Jesus gives them the great, what we call the great commission. Both of those stories in Matthew say that when the people saw the resurrected Savior, they worshiped him. What is real worship then? It's not centered on what makes me feel good, what I want. It's on who he is as a holy God. I want us to look today at, Matthew, at Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. The first three chapters of Revelation are Jesus giving uh, letters, giving communication to the seven churches throughout Asia. In fact, they represented seven regions of Asia, or seven cities with, with house churches around them. And then you have uh, two sections, chapter 4 and chapter 5, where you see worship happening. The first one the, the, in chapter 4, the focus of worship is on that the Lord God, uh, the Father. In chapter 5, you see this worship focused on both the Lamb of God at the right hand of the throne and the Father who's seated on the throne. And that's why I chose, I wanted to walk through that and look at this passage of incredible picture of what worship really is. Because I think that John, in his vision as he sees this, it almost comes in steps. And he writes it down. You see three different kind of refrains here as the, the, his picture and his vision of worship expands. So read with me this text. Rome, uh, Revelation 5, verse 8 down through verse 14. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on earth. So John sees this incredible image of the elders bowing down, the four elders bow down before the lamb. These elders representing the leadership, they bow down before the lamb, each one with a harp and golden bowls, and they begin to, to, to worship the lamb. They begin to worship the son of God. And, and in their worship, we're going to look in more detail at that. But then it's almost as though there's a pause and John steps back. And he goes, wait a minute, there's more singing here. There's more worship going on here than just the four elders. And he says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. And their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. 
They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard, there's another pause, and you see the the picture of worship expand even more. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and power to be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down, and they worshiped. What an incredible picture of what what worship was like that John saw before the throne of the living God. What a vision that, that, that he received. And, and we, we're not going to dig into too many of these details here because I don't want us to miss the big picture. But there's some kinship between John's vision here and Ezekiel's vision with the four creatures. There's, there's this picture of, of what the throne room looks like that's somewhat also akin to what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6 with a cherubim and, and, and the angelic worship around the throne of God. But I want you to notice a couple things here as we begin to dig into this text. The first thing that I want you to notice is as the, the elders took the leadership, and this was my first main point, the elders led in worship. It wasn't about them at all. It was those who were the elders coming before the throne of God bowing down, falling at the feet of the the throne of the the king of kings and and bowing down at the feet of the resurrected Christ. If we're going to have true worship in our churches, it has to begin with our leadership. I believe it has to begin with the pastor. It has to begin with the one or the ones whom, whom God has called to be the primary pastoral leadership of the church. They can't make it about themselves. It has to be about Jesus. And it has to be about coming before his throne and worshiping him. I don't know if it's, if it's just because how God put me together, the way that I was raised. I I just don't get hung up a whole lot on what types of songs we have to sing. It is rare. I've been here over 17 years and I've probably not recommended a song to our worship minister more than three or four times at most. I think maybe once to Matthew, once to Matthew. See, he hadn't been here all 17 years. Maybe once or twice uh, to Zach over those years. You know why? Because whatever they, they, they lead us in, I trust these guys. They spend time in prayer. They seek the Lord. God's called them to that role and that position. And wherever the Lord leads them, I'm gonna worship. It, it may be a song with a beat that I don't like as much as another song, but I don't care. I'm going to focus on on the one who is deserving of my honor and worship. I'm not going to worry about whether I like that, 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 whether it's old or new. And I, I want to point out something else here. I want you to notice what they did. He said, they sang in verse nine, they sang a new song. Folks, if, if you get stirred up every time that the worship minister introduces a new song from the stage on a Sunday morning, you're not going to like heaven. Because we're going to sing some new stuff that you ain't ever heard before. 
It may not have shape notes. Okay? They're gonna, in fact, I, I saw that phrase and I thought, you know, I've heard that before. Seven times in Scripture, six times in the Psalms and once in Isaiah, the Scripture lists that as a command, sing a new song to the Lord. We are commanded seven times in Scripture to sing new songs. And then twice in the book of Revelation, the Scripture says they did what they were commanded. I think that we don't see it in between because a lot of people throughout church history, you know, whether it be Old Testament or the New Testament church, they were like us. They were crotchety. They didn't like new songs. They just went back to the Psalms and they sang the same ones over and over and over. It wasn't until Revelation chapter 5 that the church finally decided, oh my gosh, here's Jesus. We better, we better do what he told us to do. We better sing one of those new songs. I, I say that jokingly, but we get hung up in our religious, spiritual ruts. We like to say that we don't. We like to say that I'm walking in a relationship with Jesus. It's not about religion to me. But we get caught up in our religious ruts to the extent that if we don't have our little needs met, if I don't hear the songs I like or the beat that I like or the type of music I like, then I get a huff about it. We're commanded seven times in Scripture to, to sing new songs. I was talking about this in the offices this week, and Jonathan's going to be leading worship here in a couple weeks. He goes, does that mean I, I can just do four new songs in the, the whole service? I said, no, 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 no. Don't, don't cause any more trouble for me than what we need. But all joking aside, if the new song bothers us, Maybe it's because we're concerned about having our spiritual itch scratched instead of what brings honor to the name of Jesus. Now, if Matthew were to introduce a song that was not biblically sound or theologically correct, we'd have a discussion about that. But I've never had that issue with him. And I won't because I know his heart. I know where he begins It has to begin here with the leadership. The leadership has to, has to come before the throne both as an example and, and, and for the, the rest of the church to follow, but also to lead the church toward the throne of God in worship. We should never be pointing to us. We should always be pointing to Jesus as the head of the church. He is the one who is deserving of worship. Worship should always reflect upon the greatest act of our Savior too. I believe that's why he gave us the Lord's Supper, so that periodically we pause and we remember that sacrifice. I'll be honest, I've, I've heard it more than once come from pastors in the last couple decades in the seeker-sensitive movement. They don't want to focus on the blood or the cross or, or those things that make you feel bad. But we want to stay positive, and we want to talk about the things that make us feel good. But notice where worship began here. As the, the four elders fell down before the throne and they looked to the Lamb of God, they said, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. Why? Because you were slaughtered. Because you purchased your people. You redeemed. You paid the price for, 
for my sin. You purchased your people for God by your blood. There's no hesitancy here here in worship before the throne of God to recognize the reality of the depth, the cruelty of the punishment that Jesus took upon himself for your sin and my sin. Jesus is worthy of worship because he sacrificed everything for us. And our worship should reflect that. It helps us remember when we come before the throne and, and we see the cross, and in most of our, our churches we have nice, clean, you know, pretty crosses. That's one thing that, that maybe we ought to have a few crucifixes. Uh, I remember an, an older lady one time telling me, well, you know Catholics don't believe in the resurrection? I said, what are you talking about? They said, well, that's why Jesus is always on the cross when you look. No, it's not. I've talked to some Catholics. They believe in the resurrection, believe me. But it might not be so bad every once in a while for us to have in our mind that image of what Christ did for us on the cross because he was slaughtered for our sin. And he is deserving of our worship because of the blood that he shed for me. And our worship ought to reflect that. Our worship ought to bring honor and glory to the Christ who died for us just as it does to the Christ who was raised for us. And then, then third, as the leaders fell down to worship there in that, that first uh, stanza, I want you to notice this, that worship was Christ-focused and kingdom-centered. You, first, from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is one of our missionaries' mantras. Scripture says here that there are going to be before the throne of God on that day people that represent every tribe, every nation, every language group, every people. If you want to hang around just people that look like you, once again, you're probably not going to like heaven because there's going to be someone there representing every single nation and every single language within that nation. What a beautiful, incredible picture of God's plan and God's purpose. But the worship here is because God has taken all of those people who are all so different and from so many different backgrounds, different nations, diff different tongues, and he's brought them together and made them a kingdom. And, and their worship here, the worship of the elders was focused on Christ and it was focused on the kingdom of God. Notice what it was not focused on, or, or maybe I should say who it was not focused on. Every once in a while, our, some of our worship music includes first person. It's not always bad. But if our worship music is concentrated on first person language, there's an issue. If it's always about, I, I need this, I received this, I got this, then we're missing the point of worship. Worship is not about me. It's about him. In the second stanza here, you see John's vision expand. And, and I don't know, because there's no way to tell. If, if maybe the angels weren't singing yet, they just came in during the second stanza. 
Or, or maybe John, he was so focused on the throne and what was going on there on the throne, he wasn't hearing everything else. And he kind of all of a sudden began to see, wait a minute, there are thousands and thousands and thousands who are following the leadership of, of the four elders who are around the throne room and they are worshiping the same Lord. And I want you to notice what they had to say. It starts back in the same place, doesn't it? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. I want you to notice that as they worshiped the resurrected Lord, they did not shy away from the fact that he died a brutal death. Because without the cross, you don't have the resurrection. And so worship here once again entails and it gives honor to the Christ who died. Their worship was Christ-centered. The angels, the angelic chorus that, that numbered thousands upon thousands, and in fact, our text says countless thousands. I, I love the, the hyperbole here, countless thousands. Isn't that clear enough? But besides the countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands, Millions on top of the countless thousands were worshiping. How many people were there before the throne? How many angels were there worshiping before the throne? We don't know. All John could see and hear were the thousands who were bowing down to worship before the throne of God. And their worship was Christ-centered. And you see it here. Why, why focus so much on this Christ who was slain, on the lamb that was slain? Because he is worthy to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and glory, and honor, and blessing. See, worship is not about me receiving power, me receiving riches, me getting wisdom, me gaining strength, me gaining honor, or glory, or blessing. Worship is about Christ, the Lamb who was slain. He and He alone is worthy of our worship. Jesus is worthy. Dr. Patterson, who wrote the New American Commentary, gave a quick note here. I, I've set aside a quick note I wanted you to hear. He says, the more heaven sings, the more the doxology is extended as they search for the verbiage adequate to garnish their worship before God. Certainly, the Lamb has all power, wealth, wisdom, and so forth. Doesn't Jesus already have that? Doesn't Jesus already have all the power he needs? Doesn't he already have all the wisdom? Doesn't he already have all of the glory and all of the honor? Yes, he does. He has it all. So why are the angelic thousands worshiping him and saying, you know, he is, he is worthy to receive all of this? It's because our language cannot even express the beauty and the glory of, the God, of God and of Christ who is there seated at the right hand of the throne. How do you describe God? We, we, Susan and I talk about this when we go to the mountains. Last, last week, Susan and I made a quick trip. We'd been looking for a, a particular brand of, of camper. We, we've camped in a pop-up, canvas pop-up camper since 1997. And we're at an age now. Most of those canvas pop-ups don't have restroom facilities inside. We're at an age now where especially my wife wants that. So just confession time here. I may be in trouble when we finish here. 
And so we've been looking, and, and they're hard to find. What we wanted, it's a kind of a niche market. I don't want to pull a big old giant camper, so we, we were looking for this. It's kind of a hard shell that pops up and expands. Really cool little thing. We finally were able to nail one down in Montrose, Colorado. So I took two days off. She had to take three off her job, and we made a run up to Montrose, Colorado, and bought this camper and drove back in it. Well, Montrose is just north of some of the San Juan Mountains, and Dallas Divide that goes... Uh, west out of Ridgeway, Ridgeway and Mount Snuffles, uh, and the Mount Snuffles mountain range is there. It's, it's outside of Uray, Colorado, if you've ever been there. And once again, as she often does when she sees the mountains, I, I started teasing her because every time we'd turn a corner, she'd go, wow, wow, wow. I said, Susan, how many times have you said wow in the last 30 minutes? She's in awe of the mountains. And so she, you know, we talked about that. And, and the point was, you can take all the pictures in the world, and no matter how great of a photographer you are, you cannot show the glory of the mountains, the majesty of God's creation. You just can't, you can't describe it in words. You can't show it in a picture. Well, if you can't, and they say a picture's worth a thousand words, Right? If you can't get the full presence or the, or the full experience of the mountains in a picture that's worth a thousand words, we will never have enough words in our language to describe the glory of Christ. We will never, no matter how hard we try, be able to adequately describe the throne room of God. That's what they're doing here. They're just humbled and they're broken and they're falling down and they're going, worthy is the lamb to receive it all. And he is. In a very simple way, you know what true worship is? It's a recognition that he's worthy and I'm not. It's that simple. We like to puff ourselves up a lot and think that we're worthy of a whole bunch. Now, our worth was settled. We have value. Every single one of us here has value. And you know how you know what something's worth? I, now, we're trying to sell our, our pop-up, right? And you can go out and you can look on, on the RV Trader. I can go look on, the, you know, the uh, little blue book, Kelly Blue Book, and it will tell me what the value of that trailer is. But if nobody's willing to pay me that amount, what the value of that trailer is is really what the highest bidder is going to pay me for, it, right? That's what the value is to me. So what's... What's your soul worth? Your soul and my soul are worth what the highest bidder was willing to pay. And that the Son of God shed his blood for me to redeem me, to, to purchase me. So, how much am I worth? In God's eyes, I'm worth the blood of his son. Well, that's pretty awesome. But the value is not intrinsic because of me. It's intrinsic because of him, because of who he is. Worship is not about us. It's about Jesus. And then you move down to the last section, verse 13. And John says, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, 
under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Every created being. Of course, my mind immediately went to that hymn from the early church that we see Paul recorded in Philippians chapter 2. In the last two verses of, of that hymn, the last two verses in our Bible in verse uh, 10 and 11 say this, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's two things that you see are common in both of those expressions. And that is that, that worship is God-focused, centered around the Father. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray in, in that hollowed name of the Lord, his Father. But it's also Christ-focused. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to who? To the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down again and worshiped. The message, as we walk through this text, it's, it's a beautiful picture of, of true worship. But the message is not that complicated. Our worship should always be God-focused and Christ-centered. And we're going to be empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit who indwells the church of the living God to even be able to come into the presence of God and, and to, to worship Him. But our worship is never about the seeker. I should never let it be about me. Worship should always be about Him, about our holy, awesome, glorious God who purchased us by the blood of His Son, Jesus. He's our only hope. He's our reason for even being here. He is the one worthy of our worship. No one else and nothing else is. So let's keep our eyes centered on him. And we're going to talk in the next couple of weeks. One of the things that helps us do that is say, stay tied to scripture, not to marketing tools, not, not to pragmatism, how you can get the most people in the building, but stay tied to what scripture says. And if we'll stay tied to scripture and keep our focus on worshiping a true, holy, living God, we'll have a solid foundation that will never crumble. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwataga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and